Christians who talk about the end times attract a lot of eye rolls. And we've all seen the guy on the street corner, you know, with a cardboard sign with red letters that say the end is near. And we kind of have a reaction to that. We don't want to be associated with people like that. But the reality is Jesus and the apostles, they spend a great deal of their ministry warning people that the end is in fact near. It is at hand. Jesus preaches with apocalyptic fury as he calls people to repent in light of coming judgment. And he also encourages Christians not to buckle in the face of persecution because of that same future judgment. And the apostle Peter carries on that apocalyptic tradition with an exhortation to the church in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 19. And he begins by saying this, that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, the end transforms the way we live in the present. And an awareness that the end is near, that Christ will return to judge, that we are in the end times, is actually incredibly relevant to modern day living. And it's how we orient ourselves to the way that God is actually working in the world. Future hope impacts and informs and shapes present living. This is Understanding First Peter. Peter gives two major exhortations to the church in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 19. Serve one another in love and entrust yourself to God in the midst of suffering. And these two practical commands flow out of one theological truth, that the end of all things is at hand. So let's look at that first application. Serve God with our gifts, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The phrase, the end of all things is at hand, refers not primarily to the final moment of history when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, but rather the last phase of history. And this explains why Peter speaks of Christ as revealed in the last times for our sake in chapter 1, verse 21. He is indicating that the people listening to his letters are in the last times. And when we think about the last times, we're thinking about a particular quality of time. We are living in the final phase of history in which Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and the pouring out of the Spirit uh, ushers in a time when the church is now calling the nations to repentance. This is the last phase before the return of Christ, the last times before the final end. And that's how the Christians are supposed to understand themselves, that history, again, is not just event after event heading nowhere, but actually God is the author of history, and his redemptive plan plays itself out on the stage of history, and Peter wants the church to understand that, for that to inform their self-understanding. And once this phase finishes, again, Christ returns and all of creation will receive judgment. And the promise of judgment serves as both good and bad news. For Christians experiencing persecution, the promise of God's judgment is God putting things right, 
That's a balm of hope for people who are suffering unjustly. But for God's enemies, judgment brings punishment. They are the ones who are going to be set right. And so the vindication of God's people, the salvation of God's people, becomes simultaneously the judgment of his enemies. And this future mindset forges in Christians a particular way of thinking and being in the world. In other words, they're to adopt the mentality of self-control and sober-mindedness. They are to master themselves, not to be mastered by their passions, but by the commands of God. They are to be sober-minded, meaning they think clearly. They are pressing into reality. They live as serious people in a fallen world with real enemies and real things that are at stake. And the promise of the end of the world motivates us not to lose our minds in an anxious kind of frenzy. You know, when you think about proclaiming the end of the world, you think about people freaking out. But actually, Peter says, no. If you know that the end is near, that we are in these final, this, this, this final phase of history, instead of freaking out, you should actually be calm, cool, collected, uh, collected and, and, and clear thinking. You should actually be able to see things as they are and actually be someone who lives a peaceful life. Right? A life that is not driven by the, the, the waves of the world, but rather you are anchored in Christ. So this future orientation actually presents us an opportunity for present stability, present focus, present sober-mindedness. And a sober and self-controlled mind allows us to pray well. Prayer lives out the conviction that God does indeed rule and reign over all things. That's why you pray. So you can submit to the emperor. Because we know that there is a king above all kings. You can submit to unjust masters because we know that there is a master over all masters. And sober-minded prayer allows us to engage in those realities of life, the difficult realities of life, but also understand the glorious and powerful reality of God. That in all these situations, God is that third party and we access that third party through prayer. But that requires us to have a clear thinking, serious, self-controlled mind. Right? If you're totally anxious, if you're freaking out all the time, prayer is very difficult. But if you recognize the reality of God that grounds you so that you can pray in a posture that is trusting. right? And even if you do feel anxious and you do feel overwhelmed, you can start prayer there. You can say, first, get me into the mode of actually trusting you so that I can pray effectively. So that I can pray the way that you want me to pray in humility. And the power of God manifests in us through love. Right? Peter is encouraging the church, you need to, above all, love one another earnestly. Love does not hold grudges. It's not petty. It's not holding people's sins over their heads, but rather it covers a multitude of sins. And he's not saying that you never confront people with sin, but he's saying, what's your motivation? Are you trying to shame them? Are you trying to prove that you're better? Are, are you trying to uh, do something that's, that's going to lift up yourself in self-righteousness? Or are you thinking about what's best for that person? So sometimes you do want to confront someone, but you want to do it maybe confidentially so that they're not shamed in front of other people. Maybe you want to confront them in a way that's very patient where you know, I'm just getting them from point A1 to point A2. I might not get them to B, but I'm just being progressively, you know, uh, uh, trying to lead them along where they are. But covering a multitude of sins means you're, you're not just caught up in holding this ledger of wrongdoings against you or slights against you. You're not constantly irritated by the failings of other people, but you realize there's something bigger here that I need to love them. And that means not taking so much offense to things. Love also shows hospitality without grumbling. You wonder if Peter maybe visited Asia Minor and he didn't have a great 
guest experience. Maybe this is his Yelp review in the form of an epistle. Who knows? But he's saying you've got to show hospitality to one another and do it with, with a smile on your face. Right? He says that the Spirit has equipped all of us with spiritual gifts. Some speak oracles of God, meaning, I think, speaking about actually proclaiming the Word of God, and others are empowered by the Spirit to serve one another. And these are all diverse manifestations of the one Spirit who is the gift, who's, who's the one who empowers all of our gifts. And so he says, everything is about the glory of God. Keep that at the forefront of your mind. And the way you do that is you love God, you love one another. Right? Focus on loving God, glorifying him with your gifts, glorifying him by showing hospitality, and love one another in those same ways as well. It's actually a very basic kind of command. But of course, Peter is going to remind people of this because they need to be reminded. It's going to be very difficult. Whenever you face persecution, what happens? People turn on each other. Um, things get escalated. It, it draws tension within, within the church. Uh, people won't want to show hospitality to one another because you might be housing a Christian who might be alienated from the rest of society, and then you're going to be, by, by your association with them, you're going to be looked down upon. I mean, there's all kinds of risks that happen when you choose to love. And Peter's saying, no, that's what you're called to, that the power of God is actually manifested when you act in love towards your brother and you act in love towards God. So don't be petty. Open up your homes with a smile. Speak oracles. Serve God with confidence and joy by the strength that God provides. So you are to serve one another. That's the key. If you know that God is going to judge all things and set all things right, you can manifest that power in the present with love. That there's going to be a kingdom of love one day, and you get to be the foretaste of that in the way that you treat your brothers and sisters in the church. It's a very high and powerful calling. Beyond that, he also exhorts us not just to serve one another, but to entrust ourselves to God in the midst of our trials. So trust God with your suffering. That's another implication of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. And that's verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Something to note here is that Peter ties persecution to words. He speaks about being insulted for the name of Christ. We often think of true persecution as martyrdom, giving up our lives for Christ. But Peter is writing at a time when Christians do not yet face widespread martyrdom. They're not really being killed, at least not in mass. So the primary form of persecution they experience, which is a lot like how we experience it, comes from social alienation, insults, ridicule, people shaming you, people calling you all kinds of false things and slandering you. In fact, most of the early church were, were made up of Jews and they are following the Messiah. And that drives a wedge between them and their families, them and their synagogues, them and their community. They are cast out from everything they've ever known. So that's a serious deal. And we shouldn't downplay the gravity of this kind of persecution we may lose our jobs, our respectability, our social status because of our witness for Christ. That doesn't mean that we should 
you know, want us to be beheaded or, or, or to say that we'd rather face physical persecution, but it is to say that we shouldn't denigrate the fact that this is a real thing that the Bible recognizes is genuine persecution. And it's something that Peter and his followers and the people who are in the church are experiencing. So he gives a little field guide on how to respond when you suffer these injustices for the sake of your faith. First, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that tests you. Now notice, it's a trial sent by God. So God is in control even of that persecution. And that fire is used by God to purify you. Like he purifies gold, removing the dross and the impurities from it. God wants to purify us from sin through suffering. So don't act surprised because you know that's what God is up to. If you show up at football practice and ask the coach why you keep getting hit, it shows that you don't understand the nature of the game, right? Don't act as if something strange is happening to you when you're tackled by a 250-pound man. In the same way, if you're surprised that people persecute you for your faith, you're missing what it means to be a Christian. If they hated Christ, they're going to hate you. So he says, don't be surprised. That's the first thing. Second, rejoice. That's a strange one, right? Why would you rejoice when society mocks and ridicules and shames you? Well, why does society do that? They're trying to show that you're on the wrong side of history, that you are shameful. But notice how Peter flips it on its head. He says, actually, if you are shamed for your allegiance to Christ, that's a mark of your glory. In fact, the word Christian was actually a a denigrating term towards people who followed Christ. And they're actually taking that word and recapturing it and saying, if someone mocks you as a Christian, you should embrace it because it's marking you out as those who share in the sufferings of Christ. So the very mark of shame that the world throws at us becomes a mark of our glory, a mark that we belong to Jesus. Our alienation shows our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Our suffering shows that our destiny is one of glory because we see that in Christ. Every insult for the sake of Christ reveals, is, this is amazing, he says, the very spirit of God rests upon us, right? Think about the spirit resting upon Christ, you know, at his baptism. I mean, he says the very glory of God rests upon us when we are insulted because it's revealing our true identity, that those who are insulted for the sake of Christ are those who belong to Christ. In short, we know we belong to Jesus when we experience what he experienced, and persecution actually assures us of God's love for us. It reveals, as we read earlier in 1 Peter 1.7, the tested genuineness of our faith. Now, Peter does add a caveat because, I mean, he knows how people operate. And he says, if you're a murderer, if you're a thief, if you're, if you're doing uh, evil, if you're meddling, that doesn't count. Like if you're in jail for stealing or killing, you don't get to say that that's you being righteous in your suffering. That doesn't count. That's not, that's not what persecution is. That's you facing the consequences for your sinful actions. Because remember, we're not called to repay evil for evil, right? One of the things that suffering and persecution does is it tempts us to punch back in ways that are sinful and Peter's saying, don't do that. When people slander us, we bless them. We don't pay evil for evil or, or reviling for reviling. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what we do. So when people slander you, uh, make sure that their slander isn't actually true. So Peter is exhorting people to say, okay, suffer for righteousness sake, but not for sin's sake. Don't, don't be stupid. Okay. Don't, don't be people who are foolish. Be prudent and wise. Finally, he calls the church to entrust themselves to a faithful creator. And then he says that one hope that we have is that God's judgment will begin in the church. Now, this 
verse strikes us as odd because judgment carries with it a negative connotation most of the time. But Peter writes this in order to provide a reason for us to hope. So the judgment here has to be something that would enable us to hope, be something to look forward to. And I think judgment here refers kind of to an evaluation. God's trials test us. They, they reveal the glory of our faith. In that sense, they evaluate us. They show who we really are. And so God brings about fiery trials upon the church in order to reveal our glory and to, to train us in righteousness. But that same fire of testing, when applied to unbelievers, becomes a terrifying punishment. Christians are like gold and unbelievers are like straw. The same fire that purifies the gold burns up the straw. So we can trust God in our trials because we know he will show us uh, to be in the right in the end. And him showing us right in the end will also reveal those who mocked us as those who are in the wrong. Again, God's salvation always brings both blessing and judgment. Blessing for those who hope in him for deliverance and salvation and judgment for those who rebel against him. And that's the great hope. No matter how it feels now, you're on the wrong side of history now, quote unquote. You are persecuted now. One day you'll be vindicated. One day God will publicly restore you and we will see who was right all along. And that's the hope that animates present faithfulness. So we live our present lives in light of future hope. And this creates in us a sober and self-controlled mindset which shapes our prayers, our love, our hospitality, and our service to one another. And this serves as a witness against those who persecute the church, for they will one day know God's judgment, while also assuring Christians that suffer that enmity with the world is fellowship with God. We know we share in Christ's life if we share in his suffering. So set your hope on that future, that, that promise of judgment, because it is both your vindication and it is, it is the hope that keeps you motivated to keep going, even to suffer unjustly in the present. And that's the way that he wants us to, to live, to live with this confidence that ultimately God knows. He sees all things. He is directing all things toward his glorious end. And we don't have to bear the burden on ourselves. We can just live our faithful, quiet lives, knowing that there are times when we will have to stand for the truth and we will suffer for it. But even when we suffer for it, rather than heaping shame upon our heads, it is actually revealing the glory of Christ in our lives. 